Take your Bible with me this morning and turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 28 through 40. We're going to be pressing our way through this bread of life discourse that we introduced, uh, that we introduced last week. We're going to talk about some more of these things that Jesus says when he, declares to, uh, when he declares to the crowd and to his disciples that he is the bread of, of life. So we're going to look at verses 28 through 40. If you don't have a copy of God's word, there are none back there on that table. Praise the Lord. You have it in front of you. That's great. Um, but if you need one still, there are uh, some under the, the offering box back there on that table. Um, there are some large print uh, leather, faux leather Bibles back there uh, that you can, you can pick up. And if you don't have a copy of God's word, that's our gift to you. Please, um, please pick one of those up and take it with you to, uh, to, to, uh, to read, to spend time in this week. The feast is, and the table is laid out before us this morning as we consider, um, as we consider God's word together. So let's feast together, but let's not let the feast end here. Let's take it uh, and continue to eat of it throughout the course of the course of our week this week in our personal time and together with others. Let us go to God's word to know God and to know what he requires of us and to understand better um, who we are. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 28. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you, give, do, you do that we might see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of, of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So last week as we spent time in, in John chapter 6, we talked about the desires that, that people have and the, the, uh, the, the size of those desires. And Jesus, when the crowd follows him, um, tells them that they were just following him uh, he, they were just following him for their next meal. That was all it was about. They just wanted another, another meal. And Jesus knew that the crowd uh, that witnessed him turn five loaves and two fish into a, a, a meal, a feast that fed uh, 5,000 men plus women and children, they knew that uh, Jesus knew that they were far too easily satisfied. These people need, and we need subsequently, these people needed uh, bigger desires. They needed desires that couldn't be met with simple bread and fish that was subject to uh, mold and subject to rot. 
These people needed to be satisfied with something that doesn't perish, but something that endures to eternal life. Just like what he says in verse 27, right before our text this morning, he says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So after worship this morning, after we gather here, um, you're going to go home, you're going to open up the fridge, and you're going to make a sandwich. Um, maybe. You'll put some lunch meat on it, you'll grab some bread, put some lunch meat on that bread. And you likely bought that bread or lunch meat uh, within the last couple of weeks, likely, because if you didn't buy it within the last couple of weeks, it's going to be a little bit dry and maybe a little slimy. You know how that lunch meat gets when it sits in the fridge for a long time? It's pretty gross. If it's older than that, your Wonder Bread and your Oscar Mayer, it does have a Best Buy date. It's going to need to be thrown away or you're going to get sick. When Rebecca and I were first married, before we had kids, we, we would go to the grocery store, when I would go to the grocery store, at least, I don't know, I can't speak for her. I would reach all the way into the back to grab the back milk. You know what I'm saying? The back milk, because the, uh, the back milk is the milk that doesn't expire at, or as quickly. And I knew that the two of us, we couldn't get through a gallon of milk that quickly. And so I, did, I wanted to get my money's worth, right? Like I wanted to, and I don't know if that's how it actually works or not. Someone told me it doesn't, but I went back there and grabbed it and whatever, just on the safe side. I want to get through as much of that milk, that gallon of milk before it goes bad so that I get my money's worth. Now with a full house, it doesn't matter. Like we buy a gallon of milk and it was like, yeah, give me the stuff in the front because it's going to expire in two days and, um, and we'll polish it off a solid 24 hours before that sucker is, is, is curdling. When Jesus says in this text that, there is bread that endures to eternal life. We should realize that bread doesn't last long. And our bread, in our world, has like a bunch of preservatives in it, right? And it lasts a lot longer than bread in Jesus' day. Uh, you might have gotten 24, 48 hours at the very, very most in Jesus' day. This is something that goes away pretty quickly for Jesus' hearers. They see bread. You better eat it. Otherwise, it's going to go away. Think about your own life here on, on earth. You may get 75, 85, maybe even 95 trips around the sun before your expiration date. And in some cases, less. The book of James reminds us that our life is fleeting. James writes, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Jesus is, throughout his time, our time so far in John's Gospel, Jesus has talked about eternal life a lot. That phrase, those two words that are married together, he talks about them regularly. And as Christians, eternal life is part of our vocabulary pretty regularly. We talk about eternal life as being our inheritance, the thing that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. But the place I want to press this morning and think a little bit with you about in John 6 is the nature of that life that is promised to us in Jesus. Because maybe you haven't really given thought to the promise of eternal life given by Jesus to those who believe. Or maybe it just becomes a tagline and a gospel presentation for you. We say, like, well, you don't want to die, right? Jesus offers eternal life. But what does that look like? 
What's included in that life that Jesus offers? And if you haven't given much thought to the idea of eternal life, maybe you're just expecting that what you experience now will extend on forever. Sort of like this continued state of consciousness forever and ever. Which kind of feels weird, but that may be where your brain is. Eternal life must be more than just eternal consciousness, though, because the Bible is clear. Those who go into hell and are separated from God for eternity, they're in an eternal state of consciousness. Some people in our world have tried to claim that in hell, after a period of punishment, then you cease to exist. But that's not how the Bible speaks of eternal punishment at all. Jesus speaks of hell as an eternal and an unquenchable fire. And in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, that, Jesus, uh, that when Jesus comes again, he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. So that eternal state of consciousness is our eternal life that we have in Jesus is more than just an eternal state of consciousness because every soul that has ever walked to the face of the earth will be conscious for all of eternity. The eternal life that comes up over and over again in the New Testament is more than just mere consciousness. It's more than maybe even what we're doing right now. I'm sure you've heard people say, uh, live life to the fullest, right? As an admonition to you. Live life to the fullest, they tell you. You think to yourself, well, what what does that mean? When someone says to you, live life to the fullest, what they're not saying to you is, um, have a healthy heart rate or, uh, or just have a brain that's functioning, right? Because brain activity doesn't determine a life that's lived to the fullest. Even though that does represent life in our world, medically, we don't think of a life on a sliding scale or a range when it comes to medical terminology like Billy Crystal and the Princess Bride, where he says that Wesley is only mostly dead. The joke lands because either you're alive or you're dead. There's nothing in between. When someone says live life to the fullest, they're talking about robust, diverse experiences. They're talking about doing things that make you happy and that you're excited about and that you're interested in. And when Jesus talks about eternal life, he's talking about living life to the fullest. Now we get that modifier on there, right? If, if life is a noun, then we, eternal life is describing that life. But when we think about it, we think mostly just about the volume of it, right? Eternal. It goes on forever and ever. Eternal life. But we're not just talking about the quantity of life. And what Jesus goes into here, when he talks about himself as the bread of life, is also the quality of it. He's referring not only to the quantity of life, but also to the quality of it. For those to whom the bread of life is given, those ones have eternal life. And they are the ones who are given to the Son by the Father. Now you'll notice in that statement a lot of giving language. For for those to whom the bread of life is given, 
Those ones have eternal life. And they are the ones who are given to the Son by the Father. And so that's the first thing I want you to note this morning. And we look in verses 28 through 34 in particular. You're going to see sort of a pair, if you're reading the ESV like I am, you're going to see middle of that paragraph through the end of the paragraph where uh, the crowd says, Sir, give us this bread always. We find here that Jesus is a different kind of gift. Jesus is a different kind of gift. Because again, last week when we looked at uh, up to verse 27, Jesus told the crowd to work for, uh, for uh, food that endures to eternal life. And then in our passage, uh, they ask again what they need to do to be doing the works of God. Right there in verse 28. What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus replies that the work of God is to believe. Verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Now the crowd right there in verse 30 then sort of turn it around and they say, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now this is kind of funny because he just did that. He just multiplied five loaves and two fish and and fed 5,000 people plus women and children. And so it's kind of like, wait, wait, what? You, like, one day ago, Jesus fed a bunch of these people miraculously, and now they're asking for another miraculous sign. And so they cite Moses, and they say, Moses gave us, uh, gave us manna in the wilderness. And to them, that would be a good sign. That would lead to belief for them, they think. But again, if you're reading the text closely, right at the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus just did that. That's exactly what Jesus just did for them. When they forgot to bring their lunch, didn't Jesus feed them? He fed them. Their bellies were full and they went away satisfied for the moment. But now it's like a day later and their tummies are grumbling again. And they're thinking to themselves, uh, maybe we can get another meal out of this deal. It's kind of funny, but it's what they're thinking. If you went back up to verse 26, Jesus said it to them right at the beginning of this interaction. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. I just want to not feel hungry. But Jesus doesn't miss a beat. He's, he's not playing this game anymore. He has something to say and something very important to tell these people. What Jesus says to them then is that It isn't Moses who gave them the manna. Because what the people want to do is they kind of want to tie Jesus to Moses. And they do that in verse 14 where they say, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Your Bible probably capitalizes P there. They're talking about a prophet uh, that's foretold um, by Moses himself and he refers to himself as a prophet. They, They want another guy like Moses to deliver them out of the sort of oppression, political problems that they're experiencing in the world. But Jesus tells them, don't tie me to Moses. Jesus is saying that they shouldn't connect him to Moses in their example of manna in the wilderness, but rather they should connect him to two other elements. First, the bread, the manna itself, and the Father who gives the bread. 
And Jesus explains that the true bread comes down and doesn't just feed Israel in the period of wandering in the wilderness. Rather, this is a new and different kind of bread that comes down from heaven and, uh, and is sufficient to feed the whole world. Look at what he says in verse um, 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Not just to one specific people group for one specific time period. But he comes down from heaven and feeds the entire world. Now if your mind is still stuck on bread that you ingest in your mouth, um, Jesus is talking about something very different here. He's talking about something very different. And the people still think, though, that he's talking about bread that you put in your mouth and you chew up and it goes down in your stomach and you digest and you feel satisfied for until the next meal, at least. The bread that comes down from heaven is sufficient to feed the whole world. Now, the people, I think, are salivating, quite literally. It's almost like Pavlov's dog, you know, when he hears the bell ring and starts to drool because the reality is that the reality is that Jesus just fed them after an interaction that they had and now they're having another interaction and they're thinking to themselves, "Man, I'm going to get some more food." And if you thought these people aren't so stupid as to chase Jesus all over the Galilean countryside just for another meal, here's the proof you're wrong. Because they say to they say to Jesus, "Sir, give us this bread always." And have you been to, I'm sure most of you in this room have been to Olive Garden once in your life. We don't have one here, but if you have ever been anywhere um, else, they have Olive Gardens in major metropolitan areas, and they have that never-ending soup and salad and breadsticks. And maybe your mom or your grandma or your wife told you, don't fill up on the breadsticks, right? These people were ready to fill up on the breadsticks. The entree was yet to be served. And so they say, thinking that they were going to get bread, Sir, give us this bread always. They thought they were about to never have to make a meal again as long as they just follow Jesus around. But Jesus isn't talking about bread, bread. He's talking about himself. And so he tells them straight up in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Now this is for their minds, I think, very confusing. And for ours, even a little bit. Jesus himself is the gift of God given to us and to all who God the Father gives to Jesus will come to him and will have satisfaction and belonging and security. That's tied up in that phrase. I am the bread of life. And so Jesus is a different kind of gift. First, because like manna, he comes down from heaven. He is a new and greater heavenly gift for the people. He comes down and not only does he feed a small group of people for a fixed amount of time, he feeds the whole world for all of eternity. Bread that you eat with lunch is from earth, but the Jesus is bread from heaven. But then secondly here, the gift of Jesus is tied to the quantity, I said this at the outset, the quantity and the quality of life. Again, the quantity being forever, it's never ending, but also the quality. And I just said three things that I want you to take note of. Three things related to the qualities of eternal life that Jesus talks about. Satisfaction, 
belonging, and security. Satisfaction, belonging, and security. And I want to propose to you that this morning that what Jesus says, especially in verses 35 through 40, is, uh, is a clear indicator to us that the only way to live life to the fullest, the only way to be people who are fully satisfied, who truly belong, and who are secure for all of eternity is to be in Christ. We are tempted, at those three areas, tempted to chase all kinds of things. I'm getting ahead of myself. So that's what I want to focus on in the remainder of our time this morning. So these are the qualities of eternal life then that Jesus talks about. The first is eternal satisfaction. Jesus is a different kind of gift. He comes down from heaven. The Father gives him to us. And all that the, that the Father gives to him belong to him. And now, Jesus explains what that looks like. He says, I am the bread of life. Verse 35. Here it is. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, we talked about desires and satisfaction a lot last week. And the primary focus and the lead into our text is the fact that the people's desires were too small and they needed to be expanded and they needed to be strengthened in order that Jesus might be the only source of fulfillment for them. I'm not going to labor over this point then. Um, But when our desires are expanded and strengthened, they need something more than mere earthly things to satisfy them. And so if you struggle to be satisfied in this world with the things of this world, good. Good. Because this morning what's being offered to you by Jesus through his word is himself, an infinite and eternal God who has the ability and control over all things. When our desires are expanded and strengthened, they need something more than mere earthly things to satisfy them. And therefore, to live life to the fullest, if you're thinking to yourself, my life isn't quite there. I don't quite feel satisfied with the way that my life is shaped up. And maybe there are many things in your life that you wish that you could go back and change, but you cannot. I have good news for you this morning. Jesus offers satisfaction despite where you've been. Jesus is, if he is infinitely satisfying, which he is, if he is infinitely satisfying, then you don't have to worry about what's happened in your past because he offers himself to you for eternity. Jesus is the only one that can guarantee this level of satisfaction. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. For the Christian life is not dictated by searching for satisfaction in one earthly thing or the next. The life that is yours now in Jesus is eternally satisfying. Do you want to be satisfied with life? Do you? The answer is yes, you do. Of course you do. Then Jesus tells you exactly what to do. Come to me. Believe in me. To look for satisfaction elsewhere is a fool's errand. Ingest and digest God's word. Go to him in prayer. Meditate on his work. Devote yourself to obedience. Declare his excellencies. Jesus is eternally satisfying. The second quality, though, that Jesus points out here 
is that he gives eternal belonging. Walk down to verse 34 in your Bible, or 37, excuse me. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. (laughs) We are creatures and we are made to belong. Our place is with God. God created Adam and Eve in the garden to have an intimate, ongoing relationship with Him. But when sin entered the world, when the serpent deceived Eve, when she ate the fruit and gave her husband to eat, when he abdicated his responsibility, through their disobedience, that relationship was severed. Now we are constantly looking for substitutes for belonging. We are constantly looking for substitutes for belonging. And maybe you found a place where you really feel comfortable in this world. I want you to meditate on the fact that they can be torn away from you at any moment. I want you to think about that any place that you find belonging in this world can be ripped from you at a moment's notice. If you find your belonging in your family, that can go away. If you find your belonging in your work, that can go away. If you find your belonging anywhere outside of the person of Jesus, it can quickly, quickly go away. But we're constantly looking for substitutes for belonging. We might be part of the motorcycle community or the golf community or the soccer mom community or we might be part of the Star Trek community. But nothing can truly offer us belonging outside of a relationship with our Creator. And so, what Jesus says here, we need to take it as Totally audacious. How could anyone guarantee what he says here? All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Only Jesus can offer us eternal belonging. Only Jesus is eternally welcoming. Sin separated us from God. Think about Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says it like this. He says, remember that you are at a time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. When he writes this to the church in Ephesus, what he's saying is you were separated from Christ. There was nothing that tied you to Jesus. There was nothing that that made you or created a connection with you to Jesus. That you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. No, I don't think, it may be, but I, I doubt that any of us, there's anyone in this room who isn't a Gentile, who is a, who's not an ethnic Jew. We were strangers to the covenants of promise, what, what God promised to uh, Adam in the garden when he said that he would send one to crush, send, a, send one to crush the head of the serpent to redeem a people. Or he said to Moses, when he said, or when he said to Moses, when he gave him the law and said, "Follow these things, and I'll be your God, and you'll be my people." When he looked at Abraham and said, "I'm going to make you a great nation," Abraham, a childless old man. These are the covenants of promise, but they weren't for these people, and they're not for us. Apart from Jesus Christ. The position of not belonging is what Paul writes about in Ephesians 2.12. Remember that you were at the same time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers of the covenants of promise. And then what? 
<laughs> what does that mean for us? It means you have no hope. It means that you are without God in the world. But in the very next verse, this is what Paul writes. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who did not belong now belong. Jesus says here that he will never cast out those who come to him that the Father gives to him. You can't ungift what the Father has gifted to the Son. You can't do it. You cannot do it. If you're a Christian, you are that gift. Here's a loaded statement for you. Listen to this. God the Father presented God the Son with you. The Son, that the Son might be your justification leading to your adoption into God's family. If you want a portrait of salvation, if you want to understand what it is that God has done for you in Jesus Christ, God the Father presented God the Son with you, that the Son might be your justification leading to your adoption into God's family. You belong. If you are in Christ, if you've come to Jesus, like he tells us to do, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you belong. And this eternal belonging points to the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. Jesus paid it all for you. The sin that separated you from God, the once and for all payment, is eternally effective. And therefore, you have eternal belonging. Jesus welcomes you for all of eternity, not on the basis of what you've done, but because of what he has done. If you join a social club and fail to pay your dues, they can kick you out. If you get a job, but you do bad work, they'll fire you. If you finance a car, but you don't make the payments, they'll repossess the car. The good news here is that all of that, all that you need, is contingent on Christ's work and not yours. Jesus says that he will never cast out those who come to him, those who the Father has given to him, on the basis of his work, not on the basis of yours. Jesus gives eternal satisfaction. Jesus gives eternal belonging. And third, Jesus gives eternal security. You've probably got keys in your pocket or in your purse right now. Why? Um, Because you want to keep your stuff secure. Uh, you're here right now, you're not at your house, so you locked your doors when you came here. Maybe you didn't, that's fine. But you locked your doors because you didn't want someone going in there and rummaging around and grabbing your stuff and taking it home, thinking that they had access to it, it must be theirs. Your car requires a key so that people can't just drive off with ones that aren't there. We don't want our possessions to be stolen, so we lock our doors. You can lock up your possessions. Doesn't mean that someone's not going to break in through the window. But you can lock up your possessions. But something that we're always doing as individuals is trying to lock up our life. We're always trying to look for ways to lock up our life. And if you've, if you've sat in front of a television for one second in the last 10 years, you know that this is exactly how they market to you all the time. 
insurance products, things that just, just whatever offers peace of mind, right? Like, oh, my water wasn't quite as pure as I wanted it to be. I needed peace of mind that I was putting the right things in my body. Pure water's great. Go ahead. But the reality is peace of mind. Things in this world aren't certain. We want to feel a sense of security. You want to feel a sense of security. You want to feel like you've gotten things handled and they're taken care of. And you want to feel like things are certain for tomorrow. Jesus says it though in verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me but raise it up on the last day. The will of the Father is that Jesus the Son will not lose anything. The will of the Father is that the Son should not lose anything. Friends, if everything in this world is ripped away from you today, according to what Jesus says here, you will have lost nothing. I want you to think about that. If everything in this world was ripped away from you today, you will have lost nothing because of the eternal life that is promised to you in Christ. This is, I'm not being dramatic. Infinite security, infinite belonging, infinite satisfaction is promised to you and given to you in Jesus Christ. And therefore, if anything that is from this earth is ripped away from you today, you would not have lost anything. Some of you are going to go away from here right away into a storm of worry over the economy. Some of you are going to think to yourselves, my world is being threatened because of the way things have transpired over the course of the last couple of years. In 80 or so trips around the sun, those who accumulate the wealth and influence of Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos will be proven poor and pathetic compared to those who inherit eternal life. They won't even register on the radar. Jesus secures your life perfectly. Friends, your life is untouchable. Your life is untouchable. We read it last week in Colossians chapter 3. Your life is hid with Christ in God. I don't care how powerful you are on this earth. You cannot pluck something out of heaven. Don't make the mistake of thinking that this life holds anything for you. Don't make the mistake of worrying about tomorrow, what you'll eat or what you'll drink. If you die in your sleep this week, you will be out nothing and you will have gained everything. Jesus offers eternal security. Loosen up your grip on this world because he will not loosen his grip on you. I want to give you two things to take away this morning. Two things as a conclusion. Two just basic things that Jesus says here in this text. And the first thing is this. In Christ, eternal life is yours right now. It belongs to you. It's a possession that you have right now. 
And so if you're seeking satisfaction, if you're seeking belonging, if you're seeking security in anything other than the person of Jesus Christ, you can go to him and you could have those things to the fullest extent. What Jesus calls us to, again in verse 35, is to come to him and believe in him. Because those who come to Jesus and believe in him, he gives life to the fullest. And it doesn't matter where you are or where you have been or what you're going through at this moment. And if you say, you just don't understand how bad I've got it. You don't understand how bad my life is. If things are this bad for me, Jesus must be withholding this life from me. But do you see what Jesus says here? He says, whoever comes to me and whoever believes in me, to those who come and believe, to those, those ones will be eternally satisfied, eternally welcomed, and eternally secured. And it's all for you right now. What desires do you have? Search your discontent. Ask yourself, where am I discontent with my life? What do you want that you think you can't have? And then meditate, come to Jesus, believe in him, and understand that you have infinitely more. That even if you got that thing, that worldly thing that you think that you need so badly, it couldn't even come close to touching what you have in Jesus Christ. Do you feel like you don't belong? Search your loneliness. Search the places where you feel like no one understands what I'm going through. Where do you want to belong where you just don't fit? In Christ, you fit perfectly into a family that is purchased with his blood. Do you feel uncertainty about the future? Do you feel exposed? Do you feel insecure? Search your fears. Where are you afraid? Where are you desperately trying to lock up earthly things? In Christ, you have life that is not subject to the stock markets or political power grabs or the whims of corporate executives, but you have been secured with Christ in heavenly places, a place that no earthly power can touch. The point is this, you don't have to wait for the next life to experience the qualities of eternal life that Jesus talks about. It's yours now. It's yours now. Jesus is the bread of life. Not just after you die, but right now, from this moment into eternity. Satisfaction and belonging and security are all yours. Don't make the mistake of thinking you need to pursue worldly things for satisfaction now, for belonging now, and for security now. And then get the better stuff in eternity. The better stuff is here. And it's now. The second takeaway is this. It's what Jesus says in verse 35, what he tells us. Come to him and believe in him. You, you may find yourself this morning running from Jesus. You may not know, know that you're doing it, but you're running from him. You're either coming to him or you're running from him. There's no neutral ground here. We're busy people. There are many things in our world that are stressors. You may claim you are coming to Jesus, but your life only give it, gives evidence of other pursuits. Stop and come to him this morning. Maybe you've never trusted him. Maybe you're realizing, I've never truly trusted Jesus. 
You need to repent of your running and come to him as the one who can satisfy you, welcome you, and secure you. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. But you're running in a different direction. Turn to Jesus and come to him. I want to I come to Jesus. I want to be satisfied. I want to be welcomed. I want to be secured. You say, I just don't know how. Devote yourself to prayer that the Spirit would open your eyes to see Jesus as the only source of your satisfaction, your belonging, and your security. Hide, your word in, or hide His Word in your heart. Meditate on it day and night. In your joy, in your discontent, in your celebration, in your mourning, let God's Word define what you're feeling. Come to Jesus but also believe in him. And belief isn't just thinking. It's not an intellectual assent. Believe in him. When Jesus says, believe in me, a fundamental part of believing, in in John's gospel at least, is living like what Jesus says is true is actually true. Believing in Jesus means that you live like Jesus is your sole source of satisfaction, your sole source of belonging, and your sole source of security. If your life is showing that Jesus is the bread of life, you will find eternal satisfaction, eternal belonging, and eternal security. Is your life showing this? Friends, may it be said of us, that we pursue satisfaction and belonging and security, life to the full in Christ and in Him alone. Let's pray.